Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward you'll join us for in-depth discussion on how theology intersects with our daily lives. We're your host. I'm Father Miles Hickson. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. And before we jump into our topic today, we did want to make a quick word about all that is going on in our culture with race and the death of George Floyd and the rioting. Yeah, I think it's important that we take a minute and just address the issue. Um, We had talked about the best way for us to do that, and we still hope to to treat this topic uh, on a deeper level um, in coming episodes. But um, for now, we just wanted to say that, you know, our, our... Prayers and thoughts are with George Floyd and his family. Um, We've been praying for him and for them, uh, the repose of his soul. Um, And also that we think that this um, is a a situation that reveals certain structural biases um, against people of color in our country, which have existed since even before its founding. Um, And so it's important for us, I think, as Catholic Christians to not only acknowledge this, but also um, to think and pray about the way that the church can best address these inequalities um, and these kind of systematic biases and antagonisms. Um, So like I said, this is probably a topic that we'll revisit at some point in the future. Um, But for now, we did just want to make a statement to say um, that we're you know, grieving over this, that we are, um, we're praying over this, that this is, you know, this is something that we as the church need to take very seriously. Uh, if this is a topic that you're interested in um, exploring further, that you think you need to maybe read up on or study up on, then um, one place we would recommend you go uh, is over uh, to our friends at Earth and Altar. Um, and the article is called Notes Towards a Theology of Race by Father Mark Perkins, who was one of the curates at All Saints in Charlottesville, but is uh, currently in the process of transitioning to be the curate at St. Albans, the cathedral for the Anglican province of America in Orlando, Florida. Um, so his article is really good as far as um, approaching the topic from a Catholic perspective. Um, and also another voice who's well worth paying attention to is Father Esau Macaulay, uh, who is in the Anglican Church in North America and a professor at Wheaton. And he writes a lot about um, about race and how it applies to, or how Christianity applies to that topic. And uh, so anyway, so we would encourage you to, to kind of start there um, because those are two really good uh, resources. Well, great. We, we wanted to take just a moment and say that, and then also offer a prayer. This is the prayer for social justice from the Book of Common Prayer. You can find it on page 44. So Father Wesley, will you lead us in that prayer? Absolutely. The Lord be with you. And with thy spirit. Let us pray. Almighty God, who has created man in thine own image, grant us grace fearlessly to contend against evil and to make no peace with oppression, and that we may reverently use our freedom, help us to employ it in the maintenance of justice among men and nations, to the glory of thy holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. And for George Floyd, may his soul and the souls of all the faithful departed through the mercies of God rest in peace and may light perpetual shine upon them. Amen. Amen. Well, for today's episode, we want to have a conversation about music and hymnody in the church. And if you've listened to any of our episodes and you kind of know the scope of American Anglo-Catholicism, you you just know that we err on the side of tradition. We err on the side of traditional expressions of worship, and that means traditional expressions of music, which means 
hymns and hymnals and uh, normally uh, organ accompaniment. And so while we don't want to rehearse all of the worship war debates of the past 40, 50 years, uh, this, since this is a conversation, though, that is still going on, we, we do want to offer the perspective as two priests, two pastors in the church who have been both in contemporary and traditional parishes in respect to music. And so I think that we do have just something to add to the conversation. And particularly, I think that I see there's always a piece of the conversation that's missing a piece to the puzzle, I should say, that's missing in the conversation when we have this. And that is this. When we talk about music in the church, whether you like organ and choir, etc., or you like guitar band and CCM, contemporary Christian music type stuff, what is often in the forefront is discussions and debates about taste, about mission, about reaching people, about uh, being relevant. But I just want to say, and I think that Father Wes agrees with me, that this is really a conversation that has nothing to do about taste or style per se. I think it plays into it. It's, it's about theology, and that theology is a theological recognition of realism versus nominalism. So if you don't know what nominalism and realism are, you can go back to our episode on uh, nominalist ecclesiology, I think that's episode four or five, and that will give you kind of an intro into that. But really quick, I'm going to put you on the spot. Father West, could you give the Reader's Digest version definition of nominalism versus realism? Yeah, nominalism was a scholastic philosophy that emphasized um, that things don't share common essences, that we create categories as humans that we then project onto the world. So, for example, there is no real category of trees. Trees don't necessarily share a common essence, but we look at trees, what we call trees, and we see, you know, we, we our brains kind of make these common connections. Um, okay, there's bark, there's leaves, etc., um, and, you know, they, maybe they share similar colors and things like that. So we're going to put that in the category of tree. Um, whereas realism says there is a shared essence of, of a thing that makes it a tree. Um, and so tree speaks to this kind of really a metaphysical category. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, we would be pretty virulently, virulently opposed to uh, nominalism, and we tend, as Catholic Christians, we tend to embrace uh, a sort of realism uh, that's been, I think, f- you can definitely trace to, to thinkers like Plato, but that has been funneled through the teachings of the church um, and, and adapted to that. Um, and, and I would say, Father Miles, I think, I think, I, I agree with you, this isn't predominantly about taste, but I do think that um, taste is not because we're talking about this in terms of nominalism and um, realism, that taste does account for some of this. Yeah, I guess what I mean by it's not about taste, it's not about uh, you like that style of music, I like this style of music, and that is both kind of equal. It's Mm, just your mm -hmm. preference. Maybe I should say preferences versus taste. How about that? We speak about preference almost in in sort of, in in terms of, of something that's uncontrollable almost. Like, Mm -hmm. well, I just prefer 
this style of music to this style of music, or um, I prefer this kind of art to that kind of art. But I do wonder, I mean, our preferences are socially conditioned. You know, it's because I'm exposed to, you know, this kind of music that I like that kind of music, you know, uh, I I think anyways. So, So that's what I think we need to be careful of. But I agree with you. I agree with you. Sure. Yeah. And also we have to be careful that sometimes your preferences can be malformed. Exactly. You might right. prefer McDonald's over a salad, but that doesn't mean it's better for you. That doesn't mean you should have it all the time. I mean, that's a kind of a weird example. But I don't ju- think so. Oh, great! I thought I made it up. Good. Not a weird. <laughs> I thought example. I think it's a great example. I mean, I mean, diet. It's it's easier to see the consequences of a bad diet, um, and feel the consequences of a bad diet. Whereas, um, the consequences of liking things that are common are less obvious than preferring things that are transcendent or, you know, what we would say, capital B, beautiful, you know, those kind of things. Sure. Um, Yeah. So so. let's jump into kind of the history a little bit of this, because you've got to know the history and the cultural movements that cause things to come about. So the cultural revolutions of the 60s and 70s, and by that, I mean, both the sexual revolutions, the, the various revolutions that took place across all the scopes of a Western society. These were predicated upon a rejection of tradition, and this is larger tradition of the Western tradition, not just in the church, due to an acceptance of this theory of evolution or development. It's the idea that humanity has come of age and is ultimately and fundamentally different after the 60s as it was before. Kind of World War II is the the long decade with the war and then the years afterwards. That's kind of the hinge that brings the West into the quote-unquote modern world to where we'll never go back. And in some ways, it's good. Uh, Not everything that came about is bad, but definitely a lot of it we could look as traditional Christians and kind of lament. And so while I'll just use the broad term evangelical to because that is the the group of Christians that have really produced uh, contemporary music. While evangelicals are quick to reject the developments of progressives from this time period, we can think of things like uh, women's ordination, uh, homosexuality as a accepted practice within the church. We can think of things like uh, pretty progressive readings of scripture, rejection of creedal orthodoxy. They reject all of this, and it all stems from these revolutions in the 60s and 70s. What I think is interesting is they fail to recognize that contemporary worship music is actually the conservative, quote-unquote, manifestation of that same spirit. It is a radical turn away from tradition due to this false belief that people have come of age in the late 20th century. And this, in turn, is is the rejection of realism, that there's an objective beauty, an objective truth that lies behind our music for nominalism. It's, It's an acceptance that just do what makes you feel good or do what works best for the time period, music is so non-being. It doesn't matter in any grand scope of things. And I would say that's that's just ultimately an anti-Catholic principle. Now, well, I think one thing too that, that and this is a, a modernist um, mentality, is that you can somehow separate the medium and the message from one another. So we can we can take the content and repackage it however we want to. Um, but what you see is that as you do that, you inevitably are changing the message. 
um, the medium and the message do do are related. Now, again, that's not to say um, the church has always used only one kind of music. Um, that's obviously changed, and I think we'll talk about that in a second. But it is to say that it's not so replaceable. You, you can't just substitute uh, one thing for another and think that it's going to produce the same thing. Right. And I think we'll get to that idea of medium and message in a second as well. So to your point about kind of the history of music in the church, I am by no means a musician or a church music historian. Like uh, I've done some reading, but this is just kind of basic factual stuff that's true. Like it's it's true that music has developed over the centuries within the church, right? Modern hymns in a hymn book in the Western world, they don't sound usually like Gregorian chant, even though there's some Gregorian chant hymns, even in the 1940 hymnal. And Gregorian chant, in turn, doesn't sound like Byzantine or Eastern chant, which it came from. And so there has been development and progression. But these developments have been, I would argue, organic and rooted in similar theological principles, namely the apprehension of beauty. They have all understood the world in realist categories, that there is something true and objective known as the beautiful. And so they are trying to apprehend. They are trying to participate in the beautiful with the best, with the most high form of music that they know how. And so I would say this is the mark of truly Christian music. Does it display the reality of God who is true, good, and beautiful? Now, on the other hand, and this is, we're trying not to be polemical, but this, I, I just can't help but see this. What fueled contemporary worship was instead this anthropocentric turn. The, the question was not, uh, what is true, good, beautiful, and how do we present the transcendence of God to people? It's, we need to have music like what people already know and enjoy. So how do we do that? So man, not God, becomes the one who was pleased or is the center or is the goal or object of the worship music, which is a strange kind of thing to wrap your head around that worship music ends up really focusing on man and not God. Now, this whole kind of project of the, the 60s and 70s and what happened with contemporary worship, this is, this is, of course, part of the even larger 20th century phenomenon, which we would call pop culture. So the invention of things like radio and TV, it took the arts away from specialized consumers and producers who understood and appreciated the technicality of a given subject. So instead, it created a culture of mass appeal. And when you have mass appeal, you have to make things so even that enough people will appreciate it that it ultimately becomes banal, right? There's this banality that is just attached to whatever art form. So for example, not everyone has the musical knowledge to fully appreciate Mozart. I know I certainly don't. It is a specialized type of music that is both produced and consumed, even though I would say the average Joe can listen to Mozart and get something out of it because Mozart believes in realism. He believes he's trying to participate with his music in transcendent beauty, who is God, and he communicates that through his music. So while not everyone can do that and have the musical knowledge to fully appreciate Mozart, the fact is, is that a catchy tune with only three or four chords is so simplistic 
and so banal that it just feels like you're you're encountering music and it's so easy to get everyone to come on board with it. And one of the things too I think with the advent of particularly Christian sort of contemporary Christian music is that it does show how the culture broadly has shifted some. So when we're talking about Mozart or Bach or Beethoven, um, you know, I mean, some of their work could be considered quote unquote secular, right? I mean, it wasn't used in the church for the church necessarily, but often they would produce things like settings for the mass. You know, I mean, a lot of their music was religiously inspired or, um, or created for the, um, for the use of religion. What you see now is a is a weird kind of reversal. So where the church had been one of the largest patronage for the arts um, in evangelicalism, I think you see things kind of reversed. Uh, so the secular culture puts out music and then the church follows behind and quote unquote Christianizes that music. So this is why like when you would go to the Christian bookstore in the late 90s and early 2000s and they would say, you know, do you like Nirvana? then you might like X, you know. Um, and so then you, you buy that CD instead of Nirvana because you know that this CD is Christian and Nirvana is not Christian and so it must be better for you, you know. Um, and, and, and I think the problem with that is that it shows uh, what kind of, it shows the kind of ghettoization of, um, of Christian art in, in the American church. Um, we don't lead. We don't create beautiful things in and of themselves. We're purely reactionary, creating these niche markets uh, for Christians. Um, and and it's, it's not a good place to be. No, that's right. And so I, I do just want to caveat and say that I, I don't think, and I know Father Wes agrees with me, and you've probably, if you've listened to the podcast, you've heard enough of our What Are We Into segments to know that we don't think that everything is wrong with pop music per se. Uh, you know, I don't think that we should only listen to classical music all the time. No, but it, it's a balance. Just as we should venture away from kind of cartoons or anime or clip art or, you know, whatever, into things like Monet or Fra Angelica and actually expose ourselves to true, beautiful, good art in the, in the physical uh, with our eyes. I, I think that we also need to include in our diet the healthier and more transcendent forms of music. So, yes, I think every person should be listening to classical. And then you end up having the conversation and question about church music. Are you going to put kind of clip art up in your church or are we going to have the best, the most beautiful for the sake of God? And I think in art, most people say, well, we need the most beautiful. We need the best. But often we, we, we failed to ask the question about medium and message, which we'll get to in a minute with music. I think, too, uh, one thing that, that helps frame this conversation, because, because you know, it could be some people are listening to us and they think that we're being really snobby and that we only like old things, that we're antiquarians and, and that we hate you know, anything new. And that's not true, um, first of all, like you, like you said, I mean, you know, most, a lot of listeners know I'm a tooth and nail kid. Like, I love, you know, I love that kind of music. So I'm not, I'm definitely not a music snob, but I also think um, when we're talking about what kind of music we use in church, um, it, it parallels the way that we would decide what books to read with our students at the classical Christian school that I worked at, right? It's not that there aren't good contemporary books. There are plenty of good contemporary books that we should be reading. And I think most, um, 
people who who care about ideas and and care about engaging in in profound discussions will be reading contemporary works um but one of the things is that we have access to is sort of a canon of western literature um so homer you know dante um etc those are good books and we know they're good because they've stood the test of time i think hymns kind of function in a similar way you know a hymnal is important because in it are hymns that have stood that test of time. So it's not that there aren't good contemporary Christian music necessar- songs necessarily, but it is to say that as far as what we use in the church primarily, we're using things that have stood the test of time in the church. And I think that helps us understand a little bit better and, and contextualize what we're talking about. Yeah, and I think that's a, absolutely a good point to make that we're not against things that are written in the modern day because maybe there 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 of course have got to be things the spirit of the lord's still working there's got to be things being written today that will be in the hymnals uh either in the next generation or the next time a hymnal is produced right this there are things that kind of become instant classics that kind of resonate with our soul what i would like to say is that there are underlying philosophies underlying uh, theology when it comes to music that is more than preferential, more than just stylistic, that the style speaks to uh, notions of beauty, notions of transcendence, and really notions of realism. And so for me, the question becomes, which underlying attitude or philosophy and the music associated with it is most appropriate for the worship of God? And this is the part that I think is hard for modern people to swallow is there something objectively better about hymnody than there is about contemporary worship? And that's that I find is the question that is often neglected in these conversations. People aren't trained to think in realist, nominalist categories. And so all music is just a matter of preference. And so they never step back and ask, is there actually something about, I don't know, pick a hymn, holy, 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 the great Trinitarian hymn. Is there something objectively better about that hymn than Good, Good Father? That's the first one that comes to my mind because I know that was really popular. Is there? And, and I know that there can be lines, there can be things here and there in contemporary music, but what's the philosophy underlying it? What's the culture surrounding it? And what is the 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 musician trying to do? Is it trying to write a riff that will be in such mass appeal that is familiar with what people listen to on the radio? Or is it someone writing music that is attempting to elevate oneself and be transcendent? And so some of this goes back to our conversation that you and I, Father, we we had um, about elevated language. So if you listeners have not listened to that podcast, it's just a few back. That might also help couch this conversation about elevated language, beauty, and the need for us to be drawn up into the transcendence of God. So we've mentioned a couple times this idea that medium is the message. And so what we mean by this is that the way something is packaged and delivered absolutely conveys meaning other than just the content. So let me give an example that I like to give. I really like steak. Do you like steak, Father Wesley? Oh, I love steak. Of course you do. We're friends. And so (laughs) we really like steak. Well, Father Wesley, what if I went to the store or to a local butcher and I got the biggest, best, 
Angus beef filet mignon. I'm talking like just melt in your mouth. And I cook it the way all steaks should be cooked to perfection is rare. And then I, and I do a pan. I love to pan sear steak with some rosemary and butter and garlic and get that nice crispy. My mouth's watering. I don't know about yours and get that, especially since today's a fast day. And so putting that on top of let me say that again. <laughs> I called you. So. I forgot it was a fast day. I had a steak sandwich for lunch. <laughs> oh, man. God bless it. Yeah. <clears throat> so then I take this steak that's nice and charred, and I walk over to the garbage can, and I take the garbage can lid, and I, and I clean it under the, under the faucet. I baptize it, okay? And I set the steak on top of it, and I put it in front of you with a styrofoam cup of off-brand Pepsi and I say bon appetit it, you're gonna you're gonna be fed you're gonna eat it, it I was gonna a, say I'd still eat it oh I'd, I'd eat it in a heartbeat there I've done that no I'm kidding and so there's, <laughs> I'm just saying that sort of steak that sort of content needs to be set on China and have a nice glass of Merlot or 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 Chianti sitting next to it with fine silverware. The point I'm trying to make is that content goes with the medium and the message, that these things are inseparable. And so while I definitely think that there are certain contemporary Christian songs that are being sung worship band type style that have truth in them, they have the stake in them, and your Christians are being fed because God is gracious and abundantly gracious. I just see that it's unfitting. And so... This is why I think that the worship band model trains the affections in the wrong direction. It takes the form of modern entertainment culture, concert culture. It replaces the content and assumes that the form doesn't shape people just as much as the content. And I think that's dangerous. I think that the form in many ways will shape the spiritual attitudes of your people even more than the content. People remember singing hymns and the way they sing hymns, or they remember going to a mega church and singing with the rock band style worship, but they'll forget the actual songs. The experience forms and shapes them. And so you, you need to ask the question, what type of Christian do you want to be forming and shaping with your musical medium? Yeah, I think I'm and I think it might be helpful too to kind of think about the the modern concert that the worship band is based on. I mean, and again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with going to a concert, right? I love going to concerts. But when I go, you know, I'm I'm going to do things at the concert that I don't do when I'm at a symphony. You know, I'm going to like I I went to see my favorite band As Cities Burn here in Baltimore uh this past September. Right. So I was jumping around. I was yelling. I was singing at the top of my lungs along with them. You know, it was kind of almost like a form of release, you know, and uh, that's not what happens at Sunday worship or it's not supposed to be what happens at Sunday worship. Um, When I sing a hymn, I don't do the same thing um, in response to the hymn by design. You know, so when you go to a lot of more contemporary, you know, evangelical megachurch type atmospheres, that is what's happening. People are it is sort of a catharsis for people in a way that um, 
that hymnody isn't. It's it's a little bit. I guess it's more angsty. It's more existential in a sense. Um, and again, I, not that there's not a place for that, um, but it just you know as far as that's what you're taking in week after week, it is aligning your affections. It is causing you to think a certain way. Um, whereas I think hymns train us to think differently. Um, right. And and I think maybe in a in a more healthy way. Yeah, so I think that's a good segue into a couple points to make about kind of a pro, kind of an apologetic for hymns. And so I would say that hymns have a larger functional range than what contemporary Christian worship can accomplish. And we should be very upfront. This is not just in the evangelical megachurch. Many, many quote-unquote traditional denominations, churches, Anglican, Lutheran, Roman Catholic, have a lot of contemporary music. It might not be on the scale of Who's the big people right now? I don't know. Hillsong. Hillsong. Uh, Elevation. Bethel. It might, yeah, Bethel. It might not be on the scale of that, but the same attitude is going on. So hymns have a larger functional range, whereas modern contemporary worship can mostly only carry emotions and lacks any real catechetical value. Hymns actually have the ability to wed emotions and theology. And so one of my favorite examples of this is the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. We don't have time to go into all the details, but you should look up the history of that hymn. The writer, I always forget his last name, it's Horatio Horatio something. And his wife and children died on a boat. It was a boat crash going across, I believe, the Atlantic. And he rode a boat over because there he wanted to cross, traverse the spot where his family died. And it was the captain of the boat said, you know, this is where it happened. And it was there that he just kind of stopped and meditated. And he, he started to pin this hymn, It is well with my soul. When sorrows like sea billows roll, it is well with my soul. And so what he's doing is he's giving a place to his emotions. But if you read the hymn, it's incredibly catechetical. It talks about us being rooted in Christ, that even when life's turmoils and, tr- and, and troubles come, we have the assurance because of salvation and of God's steadfastness. So that's a huge range rather than just teaching us to be emotional. One, one thing kind of along the same lines, I think if you, I think one of the big differences is that hymns and not every hymn, not every hymn is as theologically sound as, you know, every other hymn. So don't don't mishear us on th- that point. But there is a sense in which um, because of the context in which most hymns were written, which is um, a time, I think, when the church was better at catechesis writ large. In hymn like It Is Well With My Soul or Great Is Thy Faithfulness, one of the foundations of the hymn is the impassibility of God. Mm. Whereas... In a lot of contemporary music where it does become more about emotions, it's very easy, um, you know, if, if if you're sort of envisioning the relationship between God and the person as like a dating relationship, which a lot of the songs tend to kind of take on language that could go either way, really. Is it about God or my boyfriend, you know? Um, it is harder to conceive of God as impassable, I think. Now, not every song uh, is guilty of this for sure. But I do think, in general, it's two m- different modes of relating to God, right? Right, right. So, and, and I think there's great comfort in impassibility. So it is well with my soul, or great is thy faithfulness. You know, there is no shadow of turning with thee. You know, I mean, I, 
what is a better foundation to rest your hope in rather than a song that's kind of angsty that is working you up so that you feel like you've reached some sort of spiritual high and in that spiritual high you've sort of communed with God. Right, yeah. And, and you, you said something good that we should reiterate. We're speaking in generalities. Yes. I know that for every point we say, someone could bring up a contemporary Christian song and say, well, what about this one? Right, of course. absolutely. But this is, this is kind of generalities we're talking in. And, and trends and just Mm -hmm. if you take the whole species and kind of try to give descriptors. So we've talked a lot about emotions. I would actually say hymns teach us how to express emotions well. Being emotive, though, is not in line with the spiritual gift of self-control. And so expressing emotions, though, is. So there is a difference between being emotive and showing and having and properly processing your emotions. Again, we could we could look at it as well with my soul. That hymn was sung at my father-in-law's funeral. And he 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 passed away after a tragic sickness. It was very hard. He left behind seven children, many of which about half of them were still at home. And that hymn was sung and it gave a place for the family and the 300 people that came to the funeral to mourn and to express their hope in God's steadfastness and goodness. But it wasn't being emotive. It wasn't seeking to draw out emotions, as you kind of said a minute ago, Father, for the sake of an emotional high and release. There's a difference between emotions and being emotive. And I find that in my own experience, having spent most of my life in actually churches with contemporary Christian music, the goal was to get me to a place through that music of emoting, having a spiritual release and kind of equating that with an experience with God. And one of the criticisms of of liturgical church can often be that, you know, there's not a, there's not that kind of experientialism going on. Um, but you know, I mean, like at Liberty, when I was an undergrad, you know, you had to go to convocation three times a week and there was contemporary music and you could tell, and of course this isn't to judge the motives of everyone, but you could tell there were people who were drumming that up week after week because they felt like that's what they had to do. Um, this is how I have a genuine encounter with God. Um, and I, I do think that's kind of a problematic, um, thing to be teaching someone, you know, that, that you have to have this high because the highs don't always come. And the point of, I think the point of a lot of scriptures, um, particularly I'm thinking of a book like Job, uh, you know, is that God is, God is faithful and they're with us, uh, in highs and lows. And we need to be aware of that. It's not, it's, he's there irrespective of our emotion, which is why the sacraments are so important. I think for us that you were grounded in this kind of objective reality the, the mass is the mass, whether I feel it or not. You know, baptism is baptism, whether I am 100% genuine or whether I'm, you know, just not feeling it that day either. You know, I mean, it, it doesn't matter. My feelings um, now, you know, that's not to diminish emotion, but I think it is to place it in its proper role. Yeah, that's really good. That was that was both the most beautiful and most difficult thing for me coming into the Anglican church from a Pentecostal background. Uh, I would go to a church and no one raised their hands. And I can, and the immediate thought in my mind was, they do not have the spirit, because mm. that's the way that I had never actually been taught that verbally, but I was catechized that way through my worship. At the same time, what a relief it was to know that if I didn't have an emotional experience, because I'm not a very emotional person, so it was very hard being a Pentecostal. It wore me out. That if I didn't have an emotional experience, as long as I took the Eucharist, 
I communed with Christ objectively, not in a um, some sort of ecstatic experience. So the other thing about hymns, I would say, in terms of continuing this idea that has a larger functional range, is that hymns don't only teach good theology, but they do instruct us in beauty, language, and how to pray. So it's it's back to that principle of lex orandi, lex credendi. And I know this is kind of anecdotal, but I have found in my own ministry, which has not been super long, but I have found in my ministry and in my in my Christian life that those raised on a steady diet of contemporary worship, they they lack the spiritual resources to make it through some pretty difficult trials uh, in their Christian life. And perhaps this is because, as you just mentioned, we were just discussing, hymns usually go hand in hand with more traditional worship. And so they bring you into this place of being objectively focused on the liturgy and the sacraments and not just on your emotions. But surely our music and our hymnody must be playing a role in shaping us spiritually to be able to handle uh, various things that life and the enemy throws at us. Have you seen anything similar to that, Father? I think so. Yeah, I mean, it, it's. I think that the nice thing about what hymnody teaches us and what the liturgy teaches us, kind of like we were just saying, is that it does provide a comfort, you know, the peace that passes all understanding. You know, it, it, hey, this isn't. This isn't based on you, and and you drumming something up because I'm like you. I'm not an emotional person as far as um being able to to handle a lot of real sort of sentimental type you know worship uh, but rather this is the spirit working in you um, and that happens in all kinds of different ways and i think too like um i mean you think in the old testament with uh, elijah and and it's not the big storm or the fire or the raging wind it's the still small voice in which the holy spirit is operating and i think in our quest for that sort of emotional high, for that um, really uh, uplifting key change to the closing bridge or chorus of the song, um, we can kind of miss out on that. Like we feel the spirit in a sort of manipulated way rather than in a sort of pure miraculous sense, which happens in the sacrament. And this can still happen in traditional churches. I, I often will get just as allergic to churches that have uh, these big choral performances or orchestral performances on a Sunday, and it feels like you're sitting more at the symphony than in worship. Because one of the things that hymnody does is hymnody downplays individuality in our worship. The one thing that I think America just doesn't even realize is embedded it, well, let me put it this way. It's so embedded in our culture, we don't recognize it when we see it, is the fact that we are so focused on individuals. It's the pop star culture. And one of the things that the contemporary worship scene requires is one person standing up front, either with a guitar or just singing, kind of leading worship. And so the focus becomes on this person leading us in worship, whereas hymnody, when done, I think, appropriately as congregational singing, it really is the joint musical offering of the entire congregation. But even that is kind of diminished, I think, pretty and to, with some negative effects when it becomes about the orchestra or the solo singer or the choir giving just kind of their incredible rendition. 
I do think that there are places for beautiful choral pieces. I do think there's places for using beautiful instrumentals throughout. But all of music is meant to support the Mass, not be kind of a show within the Mass. So a final point before we move on is, we've, we kind of said this, but there, not all hymns are good, okay? There's a lot of hymns that were written in the past that aren't good. There's a lot of hymns written in modern days that have what I would say is the right form. They sound like a hymn. They're actually engaging with classical forms of music, trying to transcend and be beautiful. But the words are just atrocious. And my favorite example of this, I'll let you, dear listeners, go look it up on Google because as Father Wesley said, it will make you feel icky after you read it. It's called God Who Stretched the Spangled Heavens. And it is a hymn to humanity's achievements. It is the, it's got to be like the patron hymn of Pelagianism. And it was written kind of like 70s, we're all going to do great, we're all going to be wonderful. And it was written for kind of mainline Protestant churches that still used hymnody. So not everything out there is good. There's even a lot of hymns from the late 1800s that are kind of sappy and emotional in ways that completely downplay good theology. So not all hymns are good, but some of them are really, really, really good that we just can't get away from. And so we want to take just a few moments and talk about two hymns apiece that we both think are ones that you all should know. And if you are a priest, use them regularly. If you're not, bug your priest until he uses them regularly. <laughs> so how about you discuss your first one, Father Wesley? Yeah, my first one is actually sadly not in uh, the 1940 hymnal. I didn't check the 82 or the Magnify the Lord hymnal um, to see if it's in there. But uh, So the first one is Firmly I Believe in Truly by John Henry Newman. It's also um, Seminary Hymn is another uh, name for it, and, and that's because it, it's the Seminary Hymn at Neshota House. Um, and actually, uh, at Neshota House, what they'll do what they started doing. Um, and in fact, I think it's, I think the person that started this is one of our listeners and, um, he's awesome. So they have like a student lounge with a, with a bar that's stocked by the students and, um, they'll open it, you know, once or one or two days a week. And when it's closing time, they sing the seminary hymn, uh, firmly, I believe in truly. And it's, it's a beautiful hymn. Um, so the fact that it's Neshota House's hymn is great. It's also written by John Henry Newman, which is also really good. Um, it's got Latin, the, the chorus is in Latin, um, which I like, um, you can sing it in a, in a translated version if you want to. Um, but I think it's a thorough exposition of the faith. It begins with the Trinity firmly. I believe in truly God is three and God is one. And I next acknowledge duly manhood taken by the son. So there you have incarnation. Then there is, um, a robust atonement theology. And I trust and hope most fully in that manhood crucified and each thought and deed unruly due to death as he has died. Um, and so I think it's just a really beautiful, you know, exposition of that. It even has ecclesiology, and I hold in veneration for the love of him alone, holy church as his creation, and her teachings as his own. And then, of course, it ends in doxology, just like any good hymn should. Adoration I be given with and through the angelic host, to the God of earth and heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Um, so yeah, so firmly I believe in truly. That's I think that's my favorite right now. 
Oh, that's really good. And I love how it kind of goes through salvation history from mm-hmm. Trinity to incarnation, atonement, ecclesiology, and then doxology, which is eschatology. And and I think, you know, when we're talking about content and, and how media is the message, I think hymns do this very well, typically. Like a really good hymn in all of its verses walks you through different facets of salvation history and helps you kind of think, um, think through that. Whereas a lot of modern sort of evangelical um, contemporary worship, I think begins with the person and, and is based on the experience of the person. So you do, I think, sometimes get the same truths out of an evangelical praise and worship song as you do a classical hymn. I think the difference is that the classical hymn walks you through it in a more um, in a more in-depth way. Mm, sure, sure. All right, so the first one I want to bring up is by far my favorite hymn. It's called Alleluia, Sing to Jesus. And as one point for the Anglicans, usually only <laughs> Anglican hymnals have all five of the original stanzas. So the reason I love this hymn is it, it's, it's multifaceted. Uh, first, it's because it's about the ascension. And I find that the ascension gets a lot of short shrift. In, in theology and conversations about Jesus' life and when we're discussing salvation. So that's one reason. The other reason is because I think that it is emotional in the good sense. Like it, it's trying to bring out this emotion of praise to Jesus who has ascended on high and now intercedes for us. And so I find every time I sing it that my heart's lifted, but I'm not being emotive but I am caught up into the grandeur of Christ and his ascension. And then the other thing that I like about it is the theological connection, how catechetical it is of connecting Christ's ascension to his high priestly ministry, which then goes on in the Eucharist. So the fourth stanza of the hymn is probably one of my favorite lines of all hymnody anywhere. It says, Alleluia, King Eternal, Thee, the Lord of Lords, we own. Now, at first, that makes you go, really, we own Christ? Well, he is ours and we are his. So it's this it's not ownership of lordship, but ownership of we can claim him, which is a powerful statement. Alleluia, born of Mary, earth thy footstool, heaven thy throne. So even though he's born of Mary, he's the Lord of lords and king of kings. He's truly God. Thou within the veil hast entered. So that's a reference to his ascension, but he's gone behind the veil, which brings up the Old Testament veil in the temple. Robed in flesh, our great high priest, thou on earth, both priest and victim in the Eucharistic feast. And so it teaches that in the Eucharist, Christ acts as both priest and victim to give himself to us in the, uh, in the heavenly temple as both sacrifice and intercessor. It's just this full package of rich theology offered to us in five simple lines. So that's my first one. What's your next one? My second one is by Samuel Sebastian Wesley, also known as The Other One, um, because he's sadly overlooked by his two older brothers, though many of his hymns are very profound. Um, But it's uh, number 396 in the 1940 hymnal, which is The Church's One Foundation. Um, And I like it because it closely weds ecclesiology and Christology. Uh, The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation, sacramentally, I would add, by water and the word. 
Um, so you have a clear accounting of, of its beginning, the church's beginning, the water that flowed from his side, and then, of course, the sacrament of baptism, which incorporates someone into the church. Um, I also think it does an excellent job acknowledging that the seen reality of the church, that is our unhappy divisions, often don't explain the metaphysical and ontological reality of what the church is, um, which is the unified body of Christ in spite of our many divisions. And so he, he weds that with a kind of eschatological hope. Though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distress. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long, and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah, may that be our prayer for, for the church. So the, the second one I want to bring up, I was, I was really torn because one of my other favorite hymns is actually a modern hymn written in 1995 by the Stuart Townsend kind of crowd, and it's How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Mm, that is a good And one. I'm actually happy. We're going to talk about hymnals in just a second as kind of a, our next segment. It made it into the new ACNA hymnal, Magnify the Lord or Book of Common Worship. And so I'm glad to see that the church is recognizing that as a, as a beautiful hymn. And in most evenings, I sing that to Milo as he's going to bed. It was, it was sung at uh, my wedding. It was sung at my ordination. And so it's been sung at these kind of, it was sung at my son's baptism. And so it was sung at these major points. I just think it's a beautiful hymn, but that's not the one I want to bring up. The one that I see I what you did there. Yeah, you see, I got a third one in. That's what happens when I come up with the episode notes. So the other one I want to bring up is called O Day of Rest and Gladness. So I had never heard this hymn until the morning of my father-in-law's funeral, which was, it was a Sunday. I went to this church in Cleveland, Tennessee. It was actually a Lutheran church. And they sing this hymn and it just, maybe I was being emotional that day because of what was going to be happening later, the funeral, but it brought me to tears because of how beautiful and profound and how it just presents the, the unity of reality in God and how we participate in all of reality at the mass. And so this hymn teaches sacramental time. That is when you, when you participate in the mass, you participate in the eternal now. So I just want to read um, the, the first, the, the second stanza, I think, is the one that really got to me, even though all of them are great. It says, so the hymn is O Day of Rest and Gladness. It's talking about Sunday, okay? Like you're right here, but it never calls it Sunday. It's just talking about the day of worship. Whatever moment that is, it is the day of rest and gladness. Second stanza, on thee at the creation, the light first had its birth. On thee for our salvation, Christ rose from depths of earth. On thee, our Lord victorious, the Spirit sent from heaven. And thus on thee, most glorious, a triple light was given. And so it connects that the day of salvation is, is altogether wrapped up as one entity. It's the day of creation, the day of new creation, the day of Pentecost. And you come and participate right now in the day of rest and gladness, which is the day of the Mass. So that has always struck me as something that is not discussed at all in many churches, let alone in kind of churches outside of sacramental spheres. But right here in this hymn, you're learning how to understand time as you worship. All things are present in the Lord, and you actually enter into those moments 
as you sing this song and as you take the Eucharist. So that to me is a beautiful hymn. All right, so we've talked about hymns. Let's talk about hymnals because there's nothing that will get traditional Christians up in a tizzy than to tell one of them that their hymnal isn't good enough, right? <laughs> so so we're go- I just want to talk about a couple different hymnals and then we'll have some takeaways, all right? So the one that we have to, of course, start with is the 1940 American hymnal from the Episcopal Church. So this is the hymnal that is used in most continuing slash traditional Anglican parishes. Uh, I think there's a lot of pros, but I actually think there's a lot of cons. Please don't send us hate mail. So the pros is that it represents traditional hymnody, right? It predates uh, the things of the 60s and 70s. So it just kind of maintains what we would all call classical hymnody that was around for like five or 600 years before it was produced. It also has traditional tunes. Uh, A lot of modern hymnals have updated the tunes of very well-known hymns, and sometimes it's for the better, sometimes it's not. So what you have in the 1940 hymnal is just a great piece of musical history and a great piece of of, of snapshot of what it's like to sing traditional hymnody, and it's tied to the 28 prayer book, the service music, so that's important for us. The cons. There are some really, really sappy revivalist influences on this hymnal. So it's too big of a conversation to have. But in the late 1800s, Victorian England, there became a lot of emotional, religious sappiness that snuck into art, that snuck into music, that snuck into uh, to, to preaching. And it, I, in some ways, it's kind of a precursor of the emotiveness we see in worship. It was still kind of uh, suppressed, but you get a lot of these hymns that are about just kind of walking down the fields and life being happy-go-lucky with Jesus, your friend. It doesn't quite say that, but that influence is there. So just kind of romanticizing a relationship with Christ rather than actually describing the gospel. I had a professor in seminary by looking at something like the 1940 hymnal. He was a Lutheran and he said, Anglican hymns are about birds and trees and flowers. Lutheran hymns are about Christ crucified for you. And I said, well, if all you've ever looked at is the 40 hymnal, there's, I could see why you might make that conclusion. But all that to say, I think the 40 does have some good hymnody. I have, I think there's, I think the perfect hymn to explain the 1940 hymnal is number 299, which I both love and have mixed feelings about at the same time. So it's, it's, um, sing praise to God who spoke through man is the, is the idea. So the first, um, two stanzas go on about basically, um, special revelation, but then the last stanza, (laughs) and I thought it was awesome when we sang this in, at our parish a couple months ago, but, um, sing praise to God for Socrates who phrase by phrase talked men to truth on shrinking and left for Plato's mighty grace to mold our ways of thinking. For all who wrestled sane and free to win the unseen reality to God and be thanks and glory. That's awesome. Which, I, again, I, I love it, but it's also weird. <laughs> it is weird. Yeah, so... That's a Percy Dearmer hymn, too, so... Oh, yeah. So you've actually got some seeds. I wouldn't say they're full-blown, bl- full but seeds of what will become kind of progressive hymnody in the 60s and 70s. A lot of praise towards man, our society, look what we can do. And well, that's it's, kind it, of tied with the sappiness. I mean, it comes out, you know, 1940, where when modernity was still, you know, I mean, you've got 
the late 19th century and early 20th century as kind of this real strong point for modernity, and a lot of those hymns written in that time reflect that. Um, so, yeah, it's <laughs> there are some interesting ones. Yeah, and the other con, I mean, we... We could, I don't want to, I like the 40 hymnal. It's what we use. I don't want to be t- super negative, but it was pretty influenced by this one man who was anti, uh, anti-Catholic. And so mm-hmm. you have a lot more Protestant influence. And so you get actually some gospel hymns put in there that are, that are kind of strange to sing at an Anglican church, but sure. you ne- no one parish sings all hymns in the hymnal because yeah. no one, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So the next hymnal that's common out there, if you're an Anglican listener, is the 1982 Episcopal hymnal. So this is used, as far as I can gather, still in most Episcopal parishes that still sing hymnody. And a lot of ACNA parishes that sing hymnody will use the 82 as well. Um, and I know of actually one continuing parish in the APA that uses the 82 hymnal. So I won't say who it is because I don't want to rat him out. So there's some pros. It, it has a wider selection of hymnody and it even includes more catholic hymns it got rid of some of the sappy stuff and got rid of the stuff that no one can sing anymore that's just really really difficult some of the hymns in the 40 were made for a choir not for a congregation now the cons are it definitely has a more progressive influence it rewrites some of the hymns to make them more uh inclusive either kind of in its reference to judgment so maybe not everyone gets kind of the wrath of God type idea. And it definitely downplays stronger Christological themes. So you actually have rewriting of traditional hymns going on, which to be fair, that has gone on for a long time. Lutheran hymnals were really bad about taking other hymns from like, say England and rewriting them to make them sound really Lutheran. (laughs) Someone once told me, John Wesley sounds like Luther. If you were to only read the hymns in the Lutheran hymnal from John Wesley. So that's the 82 hymnal. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that one, Father. You ever been in a parish that uses it? Uh, Well, the parish that I served in in um, Virginia, we didn't use a hymnal exclusively, but we did. When we did, it was the it was this hymnal, the 82. Sure. Our service music was from the 82. Yeah, and and it's tied to more modern liturgy. So if you're using a a a modern, not the 28 and before liturgy, you've kind of got to use something like that. But there is another option now. And so there is this new hymnal, and it comes in two iterations. One's called the Book of Common Praise uh, 2018, which is very kind of exclusively used by the Reformed Episcopal Church. But there's another printing of it. And from what I can gather, it's in essence the exact same hymnal with a different name and a few different changes in the introduction. And it's called Magnify the Lord. And it came out by Anglican House Publishers. And I'm we, we're both very blessed. We were sent a copy by Ellen Kirkland. So says she enjoys the podcast. So shout out to Ellen. Thank you for sending us the hymnal. And I think that this hymnal is something of a, of a great step in, in hymnody in terms of modern Anglicanism. So I wanted to read kind of the description of what's going on in this hymnal. So it, it, it's kind of a conservative update of the 1940. So key features of this timeless hymnal include words that are consistently theologically sound while adding the best of newer hymns and contemporary worship music. All musical styles are specifically included. Playing song, Victorian hymns, German chorales, Negro spirituals, shape note songs, gospel hymns, and folk songs. Sample hymnody of the wider church is also included. Things like the Amazing Grace song, 
which was omitted in 1940 hymnal, is actually put in here. Uh, there's actually a wider variety of hymns connecting to God's love and our love for fellow humanity, hymns about the miracles and healings of Jesus. There are hymns that tie more to the liturgical calendar that the 1940 just either had bad hymns, in, in the editor's words, or had hymns that no one really knows, and they just added better ones. So that's the idea behind it. So there's definitely kind of um, a prose to this hymnal. It does have a more evangelical influence, which isn't necessarily bad. So it has in here, like what I mentioned earlier, how deep the Father's love for us, that new hymn, is actually in the Magnify the Lord hymnal. It also has one that probably many of us are familiar with, In Christ Alone. It has Before the Throne of God Above. So it has hymns that I was familiar with singing in more evangelical circles, like at college, but I think are more than appropriate selections from modern hymnody. So I think if I saw an Anglo-Catholic parish using the Magnify the Lord hymnal, I would think that's I, I, you could use that just so easily as the 1940, in my opinion. I, I don't know of anything that's omitted in here that the 1940, that I would say, that absolutely has to remain. I can't believe they took it out, but I could be the, wrong. The only thing would be the service music doesn't fit the 28 or the missile, but but yeah, I mean, other than that, it's... Um, actually, it does. There's, uh, if you look... Oh, in, it does? If you look in the back, yeah, there's a couple settings of the service music, and... It gives five settings of the service music. It has a new setting by one of the editors of the book, which is tied to modern language, but it actually has uh, the traditional service music setting, which is in traditional language. Oh, so, well, I take it back. Yeah, so... And it even has the one, like, the Missa Cantata that we would mostly be familiar with with some of our service music. It has Murbeck, which is kind mm-hmm. of the, the famous Anglican one from the 1500s. So yeah, I, I think it's a great resource to have uh, in terms of modern hymnals in America. Now, I want to end by talking about kind of what uh, is the granddaddy of all Anglican hymnals, and that is the English hymnal of 1906. This is the hymnal for Anglo-Catholics. It was actually outlawed by the Archbishop of Canterbury himself for a time because it has hymns to Mary. So... There are some continuing parishes that use that hymnal. It's hard to come by. 1906, I don't think it's still in print. There's a couple iterations of it. There's a new one, I think it came out in the 80s in England, that's called the English Hymnal 1980-something version. But it's, it's, it's quite different. So the English Hymnal of 1906, if you ever get your hands on it, it's kind of a gem to have and look through. But one thing about that one is you're going to find hymns that you're like, oh, I love this hymn. And you will not know the tune because I have come to find that there are certain hymns that we Anglicans in America sing to certain tunes that everywhere else in the Anglosphere, they sing to a different tune. Mm -hmm. And that can just be utterly frustrating. There's nothing like loving a hymn and it being set to a different tune. So kind of a takeaway from talking about hymnals is I, I think it's important personally, to have a hymnal in the pew that can be held and seen. And at the expense of kind of being cliche, I think it is kind of incarnational and sacramental to be able to hold a book, to be able to flip through the collection of hymnody as such. I don't think, though, that A, any one hymnal out there is perfect. They all have issues. Or B, 
I don't think that in this day of technology that we need to restrict ourselves to what's just in our hymnal. We can pull from many, many different resources. I know that uh, at last year's synod for the APA, one of our bishops who's been on the show, Bishop Chad, he told priest, hey, there's a lot of different resources out there. Talk with your bishop. Let us know, like, what do you want to do in your service and what other kind of music do you want to pull in? So it's really easy to 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 have multiple hymnals, which I think every priest and layperson should have, and to be able to pull hymns from. Because, I mean, for example, Charles Wesley wrote over 6,000 hymns. And in any given hymnal, there's probably maybe 100 Charles Wesley hymns because he's really popular. And that's considered like really heavy in the direction of one author. So there's just so many hymns out there that we can pull from and teach our congregation. All right. Well, I want to conclude with Father Wesley and I just giving some pastoral notes about music and hymnody uh, when it comes to in the church, because some of this has been kind of high up conversation, realism, nominalism. We've moved down to hymns we like in the theology. We then talked about books. We always like talking about books. In this case, it's hymnals. Now just what's some practical advice. And we are by no means the experts in this, but if you've been in church leadership long enough, you know that there is a clash between normally the pastors, the priest, and kind of the music teams, The whether that's the organist or if you're in a contemporary setting, the bands. So Here's pastoral advice that I would give. And I would say, first off, priests need to be involved in choosing and overseeing music. That doesn't mean you have to micromanage, but this is part of worship. And I hope that we've made a case today that it's incredibly influential in the spiritual formation of people. So don't, dear priest, relegate this to your music director because you are, quote, too busy. Consequently, I think that music directors and organists, I think you need to be okay with the parish priest working closely alongside you for the sake of music. After you develop kind of a relationship or a pattern, which normally takes years between an organist and a priest, then I think there can be kind of unspoken, yes, we'll do this at this time. I trust you. I know that the priest trusts me to do stuff like this. But what I have found and this is in multiple settings, I've heard this conversation, is that priests tend to emphasize the pastoral, like what can people actually sing, and musicians tend to want to be, well, musical. They'll add flourish. They'll say, this is a really beautiful piece. Well, it's beautiful and you like it, but no one gets it. Well, there's a challenge of, or I should say, there's a there's a balance of bringing people into good, beautiful, deep music, like say, for an offertory anthem. But I think sometimes organists and musicians need to be told that's not a hymn that has ever been sung in this country in the past 200 years. We're not going to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think, well, and, and you know, the priest n- knows what the congregation is capable of. And, and most of the time the organist does too. So it just is finding that mean of, like we've talked to, I mean, we don't want to ever lower the bar for people, but... We don't want to raise it so high that, that it's unattainable. So there has to be a balance, and, and different congregations will be suited for different uses of different hymns, and, and that's okay, and it's just a question of knowing your church and knowing your people and um, knowing your organist and, and everything that's involved in, in that, I think. Yeah, for sure. I, I guess my point is just I 
priest, you need to be involved in the music yes. of your church intimately. And music directors, organists, you need to be okay with that. It's, it's part of their domain. In fact, as part of our canons in the APA, and it's, it's the same in other Anglican jurisdictions, the rector has sole authority over all things pertaining to worship. Um, pastorally, he might not do that for the sake of a relationship with an organist or with other people in the church, but he technically does. And, and this does require some catechesis, I think, too, as far as um, sort of casting a vision for your church about what the purpose of music is within the liturgy, um, why you sing certain songs or why you might not sing other songs, because depending on where you are, you, I mean, you just might have different ideas in your congregation of, of what good worship music is. And, um, and so you, you kind of need to be the one to, I think, set the tenor for that. No pun intended. Um, yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. With that, I'm going to move on to another pastoral note. And that is don't try to sing and know every hymn so, you know, depending on the parish from what I've read, and I've looked into some resources for this. I think that a repertoire of 100 to 150 hymns for a parish is about right. And, and within that, there needs to be a core of about 30 to 50 hymns, meaning each Sunday, one or more of the core is being used. And that core can rotate from year to year. But the, because the truth is, people benefit better from the familiar comfortable hymns rather than constantly hearing new ones that while maybe theologically insightful and inspiring and unique and perfect for the sermon that day because they hear it once a year they can never really become comfortable with it and i think this is also important for reaching new people in your context example i'm here in tennessee in the south and while i am not going to allow a gospel jig to be sung or performed on a Sunday during Mass. There are some universally known Protestant, evangelical, and even kind of gospel hymns that we know at our parish and that we sing. A good one, it's in the 1940 hymnal, is Just As I Am. I, I think it's a, it's, it's a good hymn, but it's one that is definitely popular among kind of the Billy Graham crowd because he always sung that in his crusades. So yeah, we sing it. And when we have visitors, they know it. I try, though it doesn't always work, to use some sort of hymn that would connect with our context, our culture, each Sunday. I think if a visitor doesn't know a single hymn you sing on a Sunday, and that person isn't just, you know, bred and raised on contemporary music, like they know hymnody, then I think you've lost a chance to connect. I don't think our hymnody needs to be so obscure it, it can be a part of the wider conversation going around. So you, Father West, you're in an area that is that has a lot of Roman Catholics. So there might be a hymn that every Roman Catholic knows that isn't in the 40 that maybe your parish could learn as a sense mm -hmm. of singing with the context. And that would help connect with visitors who come. Sure. And then the only other piece of pastoral advice I have is when in doubt, follow the liturgical index. In the back of these Anglican hymnals, at least, there's a liturgical index that tells you on this day, you know, 23rd Sunday after Trinity, sing this hymn for the recessional, sing this hymn for the processional, etc. So when in doubt, those are suggestions given by, you know, the people who put the hymnal together, who know music, who understand the texts that are being used that day. 
it's always okay to fall back on that if you're just at a loss because it can be a burden to choose different hymns each and every week. But get to know your parish. Create a list of 100 to 150 hymns that are theologically rich that you want your parish to know and then start uh, leading them in that and get your congregation to know these are the hymns that are going to be our core. If you're a lay person out there, maybe have the conversation with the priest if you're noticing our hymnody is all over the place. I don't know what we're singing. We sing one hymn every, you know, 18 months. Maybe try to rein it in a little. Or if you're singing the same three hymns over and over and over, I think it's okay to go and say, hey, we need some variety. So just some resources. If you're interested in having this conversation even more, either with us or with yourself or with your friends, uh, about music, about culture, I recommend two sources. One is a bit larger and is a little bit more in depth, and it's called All God's Children in Blue Suede Shoes by Ken Myers. Now, our hope is to get Ken Myers on an episode soon. He's the music director at All Saints in Charlottesville, and you might know him as the producer and host of the Mars Hill Audio Radio Journal. So he's an incredibly intelligent man and, and, and writes and thinks about music and about pop culture. And then kind of a no pun intended or yes intended, pop level version of that book that kind of distills Ken Meyer's thesis and puts it into conversation with a local church context is a book by T. David Gordon that I would recommend. It's only like 100 pages. And it's called Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns. And he talks about culture, what is a hymn versus what is pop music. And he really just says a lot of the things we said today, but I'm sure in his book, as I've read it, he says it better than we were able to articulate it. So there are some resources. If you know of more, if you want to have this conversation with us, then we encourage you to email us and reach out to us on Facebook. All right, we're almost done. We come to the part in the show where we talk about what we're into. Father Wes, what are you into? Yeah, so my wife and I, um, we've been trying to watch a, a movie on movie night every week. And so the most recent one that we watched that I think is was really fascinating was uh, the film Parasite, which won Best Picture at the Oscars this past year. Um, it's a Korean film, uh, which is cool because um, growing up we had Korean exchange students live with us, so um, I like a lot of Korean culture and stuff. And so it was, but it was um, a really good movie, um, kind of about uh, wealth inequality, um, sort of a dark comedy and and a bit of a of a thriller um kind of mixed i thought it would it did very good um did very well in trans transversing various genres um and uh yeah just a very thoughtful film um about uh wealth and how it shapes society and things like that so worth a watch it's in you have to watch it with subtitles obviously um which requires a little more work i think but it's well worth it cool i'll have to look into that where did you get it uh, well, it's free on Hulu if you subscribe to Hulu, but we I didn't know that, so I rented it on Amazon Prime and paid three ninety nine for it, so mm. uh, it, it is what a, it is. It went to a good cause. Exactly. Amazon. We've got to keep Jeff, Jeff Bezos the richest man in the world. Uh, yeah, it, the irony's not lost on me that I gave Amazon money to watch a movie about wealth inequality, but, you know. <laughs> All right, so what I've been into is Luther, not the Martin Luther, the reformer, but there is a... TV show, uh, you can find it on Amazon Prime called Luther. It's a British show, BBC produced, about a cop, and it's a murder investigation show, and it is one of the most unique murder investigation shows 
I have ever watched in my life. And it is also incredibly intense, just so you know. Why are British procedurals so much better than American ones? I don't know, but man, is it good. It is intense. It's so good. No, not all of them. So I was watching, Liz and I were trying to watch one called uh, DCI Banks. That's another British show. And we watched it and we're like, this is just kind of boring. And we had already watched Luther and we decided to rewatch it. And within the first episode, we said, oh my gosh, the writing is good. The acting is good. The, the, even the camera shots are, are better and more inviting into the story. It's, it's one of the best TV shows I've ever watched. But the warning is it is really intense and it really dives into the depths of depravity of man. And the main character is kind of this oh, I, I can't remember the technical term, but he's kind of a black hero type idea, meaning he is not always, he's not the shining star hero. He has some character flaws. And so you're always kind of wrestling with him is, would you do the same thing in the same situation? How far do you bend the rules without breaking them? But hey, it's for a good cause. Is he a vigilante? Well, no, not really, but he's definitely not following all procedure. But as long as he doesn't get caught, is it okay? So it really ties in with like, the debate of due process versus discovery of fact, if you've ever had that debate with someone. So highly recommend it. And you also will have to watch it with subtitles because while I speak English, I just can't understand British English when they start going that fast. Oh man, what's the, oh, Broadchurch. That's the other one that I really like. That's a British procedural. I don't know if you've watched that one or not, but Uh, it's really good. David Tennant is mm -hmm. uh, the main character and it's another one you got to watch with subtitles. I know. Isn't that crazy? We speak It's so English, thick. His except, accent is so thick. Except that English. No, I haven't watched that one. Liz really likes that one. I love British TV shows. I think that they're, um, I just think they're producing some of the best TV shows and America is just falling down the pits because you know what I tried to watch? I tried to watch Space Force. That's the new show. It's yeah. produced by the guys who, or the guy who made The Office and Steve yep. Carell's the main character. That is the most unfunny thing I've ever seen in my life. We watched the first episode and I liked it. I haven't watched the rest yet though, so we'll we'll, well save that yeah, for maybe sorry. another what we're into. Maybe I maybe I've ruined it, but it was it's like it's trying to be the office again with none yeah. of it doesn't have the charm or the situational comedy or workplace it's I don't know what they're trying to do. It was I was really looking forward to it. But there mm. you go. Space Force. If you like it, you can send me hate mail. <laughs> well, if you do like what we're doing here at the Sacramentalist Please rate and review us. If you want to have further conversation about music, church music, hymnody, we do, and it's civilized. Let's have that conversation in our Facebook discussion group uh, where we can discuss and talk about further things with the show. And if you didn't know, you can also support the Sacramentalists over at Patreon. For just $5 a month, you can show some practical love and you get an indulgence, meaning you join the communion of Patreon saints. Over time, we definitely hope to develop some cool stuff for people who are our Patreon supporters. As always, you can email us with your feedback, show ideas, questions, comments, concerns, and priestly questions at thesacramentalist at gmail.com. Father Wesley, bless us. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.